All right, grab your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17. Last week uh, in this same chapter, we studied the transfiguration of Christ as Jesus took Peter, James, and John up the mountain with him to witness a striking display of future glory, both Christ's and, as we discussed, ours as well. When we saw that, it strikes us with the glory that Jesus has from his Father that he intends then to share with you and with me. But this week, we'll see what that glimpse of future glory was for as we consider the other half of the story. So Matthew chapter seven will begin, 17, rather, will begin in verse 14. It says this, And when they came to the crowd, that being Jesus, Peter, James, and John, when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him, and kneeling before him, said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures, and he suffers terribly. For often he, fall, he falls into the fire, and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. <clears throat> the famous Renaissance painter Raphael wonderfully portrays Matthew chapter 17 in a painting that's called The Transfiguration. The painting contains two scenes simultaneously. There's the brightness and glory of the mountaintop where Jesus is transfigured, but then there's also the darkness and gloom at the base of the same mountain. One picture, two scenes, as it is even in our text this morning. The contrast in the painting is striking because the contrast in the text that it is portraying is itself striking. You see, in the first half of chapter 17... There's all this hope and beauty and promise. As Jesus is transfigured, shining brightly, Moses is there, Elijah is there, all harbingers of good things to come for God and his people. Wonderful hope, wonderful beauty. But as Jesus brings Peter, James, and John back down the mountain, the hope of what will be gives way to the reality of what is now. So it's happening in the second half of this account, the reality of sin and darkness and our helplessness in the face of it. That's what comes to bear on them as they descend down the mountain. As Peter, James, and John are, if you will, at a conference on top of the mountain with great speakers and catered lunches and child care, insulated from the woes and concerns of daily life up on the mountain, Having their, quote, what we would call mountaintop experience, obviously that reference comes from the passage that we're in, there's an entirely different experience for the other nine disciples who didn't get invited to the conference. 
down the mountain where everybody else is, there's a helpless father bringing his helpless son to helpless disciples. So it's happening down the mountain. We're meant to see the contrast of great hope and great hopelessness in this passage. On the hopeful front, there's a new greater Moses leading a new and greater Exodus. There's a new Elijah who has come to kickstart the restoration of all things. There's the Son of Man shining like the sun in a glory that he means to share with his people. That's all the hope from the first 13 verses. But concurrently, at the exact same time, there's a father in anguish because he can't do anything about the anguish of his son. We ought to read these things existentially, as Dr. R.C. Sproul would tell us. Not just theologically, but we should enter into these accounts, not just assess them intellectually or in a cold and calculated way. Let's say it's your son who is suffering going in and out of fits of mania. He's your boy one moment, but then he's taken over in the next moment, unexplainably harming himself, burning himself, casting himself into the waters to drown himself. Our translation says that the boy suffered from seizures, but that's a modern interpolation rather than a faithful translation. The word used in the Greek, I understand why they did it, but the word in the Greek is moonstruck. They say that the boy is moonstruck, which is why if you're reading the King James Version of the Bible, it'll say that he's lunatic. Why lunatic? Because luna is the Latin word for moon, which was them trying to get at the idea he's, he's moonstruck, because at the time, they believed that it was the phases of the moon changing that would induce these sorts of manic episodes. Hence, he's moonstruck. He, he goes in and out of craziness, of Mania, and that was their diagnosis, effectively, at the time. He's moonstruck. The other word that's used to describe the boy's condition is just, he's suffering. He's suffering greatly. You look at that word in the original language and a, a good translation for it that maybe is a little bit less, uh, I don't know, banal than suffering is misery. Misery. He's miserable. And again, let's say, it, it's your, it's your boy. It's your boy, your dad, it's your situation. You've taken him everywhere, you've tried everything, every specialist, every alternative practitioner. You've emptied your pockets trying to save your son. But you hear about this Jesus and his disciples. They heal, they cast out demons, they restore. You take your boy to this man's students because you've heard about his students too because you remember Matthew chapter 10, right? Remember Matthew chapter 10 and Jesus called to him his 12 disciples and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. He's heard of Jesus' disciples too because they had been going through the cities and towns where Israelites lived and they'd been performing those very works. Every disease, it says, every affliction, didn't matter that it was idiopathic and they had this placeholder of moonstruck. Didn't matter because every affliction, they had authority and power from Jesus himself to subdue and to cast out. You hear those stories, you hear those accounts, it comes to your ear, and as a father, hope begins to well up in you. I'll take my boy to them. 
You get there. One of the disciples meets you, hears your story, begins to work on your boy. No change. No progress. Another of the disciples comes around, begins to try attempt at healing your son, no change. Another one tries nothing, nothing. All nine of the disciples work to heal your child, and all nine of them fail. And again, the hope drains out of you. When you see what the mountaintop boys have to walk back into as they descend the mountain, it's clear why Peter wanted to stop and stay atop the mountain, isn't it? It become, becomes obvious if those are the kinds of scenarios that are waiting for you at the bottom of the mountain, then we understand why Peter said earlier in the first 13 verses, Jesus, can we just augment this experience? Can we just hang out here a little bit longer? I'll build some commemoratory shelters and we can stay here with Moses and Elijah. You can cater lunch through the ravens. I know you've done that before with Elijah. We could do that again. We could stay here for a long time. <laughs> but they couldn't stay up there. They couldn't stay up on the mountain because the light from the mountain hadn't yet taken over the darkness that still lurked and dominated the world below. So there was yet work to be done. They had to descend the mountain because the light that was there was supposed to permeate more broadly than that mountaintop. The glimpse of glory on the mountain was meant as fuel that would send them back into the trenches with a fresh vision of the joy that was set before them so that they could endure their crosses. That's what the glory was for. That's why this moment, that's why, why let them see it. Glory is for battle. Glory is for sustaining you in darkness. Glory is for fighting. That's what it's for. That's why the transfiguration occurs in such close proximity to Jesus' declaration that he's building his church and he's sending her to rip down the gates of hell. So here's some of my glory to fuel that work. We don't have an escapist religion. We have a militant one. We don't shut the world out in an attempt to feel closer to God and become more aware of his glory. Rather, we get close to God and in touch with his glory so that we can take it with us into the world. But there are some head-scratching elements in this text particularly Jesus' response to the disciples' inability to heal this man's son. It's sort of a puzzling account, and if you've read any commentaries on it, you'll notice that it's very short attention. It's, it's very, a, a very terse treatment of Jesus, I don't know what you want to call it, outburst against the disciples here. You'll get a sentence or two, but everybody wants to kind of turn their eyes away from that version of Jesus. <laughs> But we encounter an exasperated, annoyed, and frustrated Lord in verse 17. He says, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. See so if he's saying, You incompetent, do I have to do everything myself? Just bring him to me. Just bring me the kid. That's what Jesus, that's what Jesus is saying you. That's how he's talking. That's the tone. That's what we're intended to get from the text. It seems pretty clear. This isn't the collected, calm, compassionate Jesus that we all love to see and typically celebrate, is it? This is a different version of Jesus that we see here. 
And what's striking is that the Jesus here that's bordering on anger is not directing that anger in places or toward people that we think it would be okay for him to direct that anger toward. If he was talking to the Pharisees, we'd all be like, yeah, get those religious legalists. Like, that's yeah, fine. Yell at them. Not the disciples. Like, that's our team. Don't yell at the disciples, and much less for their inability to do something. Right? It's not like they didn't try, Jesus. I mean, they're, they're working. They're, they're trying. They didn't even try to cover it up. Be like, Jesus is on the mountain with it. Maybe he doesn't even need to know about this. So just get this guy out of it. No, I mean, they tried. They did their best. They were compassionate. They were ministerial. They, they failed at something that they said. They even have faith in Jesus, don't they? Okay, we couldn't do it. But trust me, we can get you to the one who can. Right? I mean, I, we're, we're reading this text, and we're thinking, I think they did a great job. <laughs> I think they, did great. they tried their hardest, and when they failed, they went and got the boss. Right? Do that all the time on construction sites with Matt. Matt, I failed. I'm sorry. Will you fix this, please? <laughs> he doesn't usually yell at me like Jesus did. <laughs> What's going on in this scene? What's happening in this account? Why this version of Jesus? I think the reason that this is so frustrating and exasperating to Jesus is because his primary point, God's primary point in creating the world was in fact to make image bearers who would reflect his glory in a very particular way, and that is by doing the things that God himself does. Like, like this is a fundamental purpose of all of creation was the glory of God being manifest through the creatures of God precisely because they were doing the things that God was doing. That's how the universe is designed to function. That's why God gave Adam dominion over what he made, right? It's why God says to Adam, hey, I've been exercising all of this dominion, all of this creative power and authority. I want you to now go and carry that dominion forward. I want you to do what I've been doing. To a much lesser, a much less glorious degree, to be sure. To be sure. But that ultimately the extension of God's glory was supposed to be happening because Adam was doing the same thing that God was doing. That's fundamental to the early chapters of the Bible because that's the purpose for which God created. God makes, we make. God rules, we rule. God begets, we beget. You, you see the idea. This is his entire plan for the creation of the world. We're meant to be as our Father in heaven is, hence the calls to imitation that permeate the scriptures over and over and over. Be like your Father who is in heaven. Here are moral commands that if followed will make you like your Father in heaven, all emerging from his nature, his character, which we are intended to reflect. You get the idea. This is fundamental to the purpose of creation. We aren't meant to simply watch God do things. We're meant to do the things that God does. That's the idea. And you can see Jesus, obviously, is carrying this intention with him into his ministry with the disciples because he wants them to be doing the things that he does, which is why Matthew chapter 10, which we already discussed briefly, has Jesus giving his own disciples authority and dominion over every disease and affliction so that they can do what? What he had been doing. You see the idea? He wanted to extend that glory further and wider through the work of his disciples. Again, that's the basic purpose for which man was created to begin with. 
to behold and then reflect the glory of God in the world by being like he is and by doing the things that he does. That's the reason we're here. And that means that the disciples' failure here is a fundamental failure. They're failing to exercise the dominion for which mankind was made, and they're failing to exercise the specific dominion that was given to them by the Lord Jesus to perform the very tasks at which they're failing presently. They weren't supposed to just watch Jesus do it. They were supposed to do it too. When man doesn't do what God does, the glory of God is not displayed through man as is intended. Meaning that the disciples' failure here is nothing short of a breakdown in the very purpose of creation. And it provokes our Lord, frustrates our Lord. And he does not think it a sinful thing to exhibit that frustration. But Jesus' diagnosis of the disciples' failure is the most puzzling part of this text. The disciples are down, they're dejected because they've failed Jesus, they've failed this this man and his son. And if we're reading existentially, those of you who have served in ministerial functions, either at a church or as the head of a household or in a discipleship relationship with somebody else, you know what it is to be ineffectual in the ministry. Anybody know? Anybody know that feeling? Everybody know what it is to have the marriage counseling for six months? To pour yourself out, to pray, to fast, to counsel, to aid, to come alongside. Then you get the call, yeah, we signed the papers today. And, And what's the response of Jesus to his dejected disciples? Is it encouragement? Hey guys, you'll get them next time. (laughs) No, he he scolds them. He scolds them because of the frustration that we just enumerated. But again, the puzzling part of this text to me, upon my first, I don't know, six or seven readings, is how he diagnoses their failure. What accounts for their failure? They cast out demons. They had come back rejoicing after initially having been sent out. Why did they fail? What is it that's happening? What is it that's changed? And, and what the Lord Jesus says in response to their question, why couldn't we do it, is the thing that really doesn't make sense when you first read it. Jesus responds by saying this, it's because of your little faith. <laughs> it's because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. And nothing will be impossible for you. That's such a confusing reply. Because boiling all of that down, here's what Jesus just said. He just said, you couldn't do it because you've only got a little bit of faith. And then what's he say in the next sentence except, you could have done it if you just had a little bit of faith. Did anybody, anybody else pick up on it? You just need a little bit of faith. You only have a little bit of faith. So shouldn't we have been able to do it? You see the puzzle. In the passage, what's what's the breakdown? It seems that the disciples were in possession of at least the little faith that was required to perform this particular work. They've got enough faith to leave their livelihoods to follow Jesus. They've got enough faith to continue following him as things are beginning to heat up politically and socially. 
They've got enough faith, as we saw in recent chapters, to identify Jesus as the Messiah himself. I mean, they're heads and shoulders above everybody else in the faith department. And yet Jesus looks at them faithless. You couldn't do it because you've got little faith. It sounds to me like they've got at least a medium-sized amount of faith. At least. So what's Jesus getting at? Says your problems, you've only got a little faith. Just have a little faith. It's weird. It doesn't make sense upon first reading. And this puzzle, this seeming contradiction, I think forces us to see Jesus as making a slight distinction in the nature or kind of faith that's in view in the passage. Because again, it seems obvious that they have faith in Jesus, doesn't, doesn't it? It seems obvious that they have, they have faith in Jesus. They have all kinds of faith in what Jesus can do directly himself, his words, his hands, his body. They've seen it. They believe it. Jesus can do it, which is why when they fail, who do they go find? Jesus. Why? Because they've got all the faith in the world that he can do what they cannot do. Plenty of faith in Jesus. They struggle to have faith in what he might do indirectly. That is, through them. Through their words, through their hands, through their bodies. Not so sure about that. <laughs> Not so sure about that. Or stated differently, you could say, if you want to be pithy and pastoral in your sentence structures, you could say that they trust Jesus' power, but they doubt his plan. They trust Jesus' power, but they doubt his plan. And the reason is because his power doesn't have anything to do with them, but his plan does. Now, Jesus can do it all day long. You throw me into the mix and I, ain't, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. Now, I know that the staunch reformed types among us have a little allergy to this sort of emphasis in a sermon. Some of you are already squirming. <laughs> we'll want to make sure that I follow this up by talking about total depravity or quoting the text where Jacob is called a worm and kind of balance this out a little bit so that I don't sound like Stephen Furtick or Oprah Winfrey telling you to believe in yourself or how special you are. <laughs> right? Want to, want to strike the balance, Wes. Don't start sounding like one of those guys. But of course, I'm not telling you to believe in yourself. I'm telling you to believe that Christ intends to do wonders through you despite the fact that you're you, not because you're you. That's, that's what I'm getting at. In fact, he chooses you and he chooses me because he likes using the weak things to shame the strong, and he likes using the foolish things to confound the wise. Hence you and I being here right now. <laughs> so trust me, this is no compliment to us. It's just faith in what God's word reveals, and that revelation puts you and me at the center of God's grand plan to bring the glory from the Mount of Transfiguration down to the world below. I know you guys. You've got no shortage of faith in Christ. No shortage of faith in Christ at all. You know that all authority in heaven and on earth is His. You believe it and you celebrate it. You know that all power is given to Him as well to go with that authority. It's not just positional authority. It's functional power to accompany. You know all of that. You trust in Christ. You believe in His power. But do you know, trust, and believe that he has vested 
some of that power and authority into us as his body, as his church? Or do we have the expectation that Jesus doesn't mean to do anything very significant in the world until he returns to the earth with his personal, physical body again? And until that happens, we're just meant to flounder at the base of the mountain, failing to cast out the demons. Maybe that's the expectation. Jesus says, though, that mustard seed-sized faith will uproot mountains. But in context, remember that that isn't faith that Jesus will do it personally. That's faith that he would do it vicariously. That is through them. That's the context of the text. That's the context of the discourse about faith here. I should also note that this mountain-moving language isn't random. This is a Hebrew idiom that was used in two primary ways, one of which was to express the idea of, of solving or working through an otherwise intractable problem, something that was so difficult that other people couldn't solve it, couldn't figure it out, didn't know what to do, couldn't orient themselves. And, and, and so there was this idiomatic expression about mountain movers, and those were effectively the sages in the Hebrew community. And they were the ones where you took, okay, here's the jam that I'm in. And it was the mountain movers that you would take those sorts of problems to. It was one of the ways that the expression was used. The other way that this mountain moving language was used was actually as a socio-political image, particularly in the Old Testament prophets. In passages like Jeremiah chapter 4 and Zechariah chapter 14, mountain moving is an image for nation building, nation transforming, and nation destroying. Meaning that moving mountains is effectively their way of saying changing the world. Changing the world. It's altering the course of history or changing a culture or, re or reorienting a society. It's the other way that the language is used. So in Matthew chapter 17, Jesus is telling us that a little bit of faith can change the world. If you want to use modern vernacular. And then at the end of Matthew's gospel, in chapter 28, what does he do except command us to go and do just that? Here he says, that's possible. In chapter 28, he says, go do it. Now in closing, I'd like for us to return to the exasperation of Christ toward the disciples. So I know that that's still something that for some of us is, I don't know, maybe a stumbling block of sorts to see Jesus in that way. And so I, I do want to draw attention to the fact that his frustration here is actually a window into his compassion. You see, it's Jesus' desire for his disciples to live as he lives, to conquer as he conquers, and to do the things that he does that drive his exasperation. He's trying to give them something, and they're failing to receive it. That's the idea. That is to say that Jesus' generosity is the thing that underlines his harshness or underlies his harshness in this scene. And we can think of that all through Scripture, can't we? God is particularly vexed when he's working to bless his people, but we're resolved not to receive the blessing. <laughs> it's one of the particular ways to get God incensed, like father, like son. He wants to give to us. He wants to share with us. He wants to raise us up in ways that he is raised up. He wants to conquer through us. But we often have little faith and we fail to receive his generous intentions. 
Do any of us actually believe that the Lord intends to do mountain moving? To look at a culture like ours, to look at a nation like ours, to look at what surrounds us, and that he has any intention to use your family to do anything about that? Do you believe that? Amen. Or have you moved to this place where it's kind of like, yeah, I see all the headlines, and we all follow legitimate news sources, so we actually know what those stories are. <laughs> and so are, are we looking at those, and then we're looking at our sons and our daughters and our marriages, and we're thinking, ain't no moving that mountain. Jesus is going to have to come back. There's nothing that the church would be able to do about that. We're going to need, personally, you've got to come. There's nothing vicarious to be done. I want to suggest to you that that would be you and I having the same little faith that the disciples had. To not see the significance and the potency that the Lord has vested in his people as we are obedient, as we are faithful, as we worship, as we train our children in the way that they should go, that there is a power and a potency there, and it's not your power, and it's not your potency, and it's not your wisdom, and it's not your faithfulness. It's the Lord Jesus mediating his all of those things through your hands, your words, your body. I believe that believing this is crucial for the fight that we're in. So take this text. Say, Lord, I believe you. Help my unbelief. And may I live today like you mean to move some mountains and that my family is attached to it because you commissioned me as you commissioned your own disciples. Let's pray.